1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, historian Lucy Ingalls takes us into the streets of Georgian London, in Georgian London Into the Streets. Lucy Ingalls is a historian, novelist and occasional television presenter. In 2009, she created the Georgian London blog, which became the largest free body of work on the 18th century city online. And this became a book, Georgian London Into the Streets, which we're going to be talking about today. She's currently working on a book about opium, which hopefully we're going to touch on a little bit at the end, but Georgian London it is for today. So, Lucy, thanks for coming in. No problem. First of all, I want to ask why Georgian London? What is it about that particular period that appeals to you
2: oh it's really there's loads of reasons and also i'm a bit of a cheat because i go from uh, 1660 so it's not mm-hmm. officially george in london and i go all the way up to uh, victoria <laughs> so you know i do cover as we would say kindly the long 18th century but it does for me from 1660 onwards is such an important time and it's our first truly documented age when ordinary people get to kind of make their mark in history and for me that was so important even though loads of it's really boring, like insurance forms and all this kind of stuff, wills and it's actually it, it shed so much light onto ordinary people's lives in the eighteenth century when people were modern and did have a modern way of thinking, mm-hmm. even if they didn't have everything that we imagine now to be part of our lives.
1: And you say you you know, you're cheated by starting before Georgian. But of course you you're talking about things that made Georgian London a number of historical occurrences, let's say, that you describe make in Georgian London what it is so I want to in the first part of the show go through those things and those things are first of all the restoration the plague the great fire of London and the glorious revolution of 1688 so um well let's start with the restoration let's go back and recap what they are and as we go along we'll perhaps talk about what they you know what influence they would have on the thing we call Georgian London
2: yeah we're really lucky in that London is in, in lots of different ways but London is and I think that's a really common preoccupation now and quite rightly London is almost a satellite of Britain at large but it's very much part it's a it's both a sponge and a reflection Mm -hmm. of the country because even in the late 17th century up to a fifth of people would spend some if not the majority of their working career in London. So to say, oh, London was just this bubble and it's a satellite, and people didn't actually go and spend time there, and it didn't influence the rest of the country is insane. in the same way that it, you know, people often, loads of people in the north or where I'm from, come to work in London for a set amount of time. And either it, it suits them or it doesn't. Or but they do, they still come and then they <laughs> go and they take that with them. And you've done it yourself. <laughs> and and so you, you know, for 15 years, you're that's where you live, and you take that away with you. And it is like it's all not, it's where things happen. So we were really lucky in this country, I feel, we had four catastrophic in many ways events in a very short space of time within two generations let's say whereas on the continent you didn't didn't have that same impetus or catalysts that changed society in the same way so we had all these different things that affected well we're going to go on and speak about those i think but the restoration was the first one so Mm -hmm. we had cromwell's commonwealth and we saw that this idea of a very early idea of complete socialism Of course, you still get the people at the top who want everything to work their way and want their children to run it, even though their children have proved themselves worthless. You know, it's it's the old socialist argument. (laughs) Oh, yes, the same for everyone, apart from my children. (laughs) Which is... And and we see this time and again now in modern politics, and we see it in this country. People talk about, you know, Chinese dictatorships. We see it here as well. So we'd worked out in a very short space of time that we may have killed a monarch... But what we've got is crap, and it doesn't suit. <laughs> it doesn't suit a young and, and London by this stage is trading overseas. It's becoming a global power. It's becoming a city state. The Royal Exchange is trading commodities. We're trading in luxury goods. Yet young people in their twenties who are getting married, establishing households, aren't allowed to own any. That's essentially the idea. It's not going to work. <laughs> and so we start to look to Charles II, who is full of fun and has been dispossessed and is waiting in The Hague and people also think Charles was really stupid and he wasn't He <laughs> was kind of like a really, I don't know I, I find Charles II a little bit malevolent, I don't find him necessarily that joyful and mm-hmm. fun, I think he definitely had a plan always and so he's waiting to come back the city it's not westminster never make that mistake it's not the government who makes this idea that charles can come back it's a deal done with the city hence when he comes back he comes into the city and is welcomed by the alderman of the city and you know this whole big ceremony and he goes straight through the city down onto the strand then to westminster it's a financial economic pragmatic decision made by the merchants and all these different people in london essentially but in britain two. Take the king
1: back and we should perhaps before before we move on to look at the other elements especially when we get to the well both the plague and and the fire are going to affect again the city predominantly so London is this this is still a time like we, we it's difficult sometimes to sometimes envision this from the the sort of modern city that that we all know but you know a lot of those familiar places you know Islington and Highgate and whatever and we're all like villages that yeah. were like oh, like a distance away
2: definitely a
1: distance away from the city the city being still what we we would describe as the city of london the financial center st paul's and everything and westminster is a distance away it's like it's, it's a considerable distance away
2: they're really viewed as quite distinct so you've got the city itself the city was so small in the 1500s that merchants would buy country mansions on hoban that was how small it was Mm -hmm. and in uh, st giles in the fields and then we have westminster which has traditionally been the seat of government but the city's kind of interested in it it's not you know and this idea now that the government can rule the city is so insane it's people still think that london is one big mass Mm -hmm. they've come to think that london is one big mass and the government can sit in westminster and tell the city what to do is a complete joke it's as separate as it was back then and then you get Inigo jones builds this amazing piazza and it's supposed to be this continental lovely place kind of between two cities and where people can stroll and it's all and and of course being londoners we build around it (laughs) so rapidly but yeah very different and and there was absolutely a sense i think that what is it there's 1.6 miles between the two it's a distance mm-hmm. in terms of centers so Well, i it, it wasn't
1: completely built up between the two it's it's a distance yeah yeah okay so the plague is next obviously this is something yeah. that has a has a huge impact on the city
2: massive uh, it's um psychological more than well say, to say psychological die. more than anything else i mean <laughs> loads of people died let's not forget that <laughs> let's not forget that <laughs> 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 Loads of people died, but people were far more used to plagues than we are now. Justinian mm-hmm. I mean, pestis is the bubonic plague. was only one of a number of plagues we'd suffered over the years. Yeah. I mean, it was the most serious one, and. If you were living in the city at the time, you could get the plague and you didn't know why. So you kind of had an idea. So, so loads of families were immensely uh, clean and tidy and scrubbing everything and making everything beautiful. Yet one of them would go out and get the plague. And then of course because they keep everything so clean and tidy and beautiful and they die and then their bodies are taken away, no one else gets it. So why did they get it? Why didn't we get it? But then you get whole families of course who live in sadly squalor or poverty and they all get it and they all die so there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason but we know now
1: but also there'd be families where they all got it and they'd survive
2: we don't know why that happens we still don't know why <laughs> because we do have outbreaks of bubonic plague and what tends to happen towards the end of an outbreak is people start to get it and they don't they sweat kindly so they just don't die and so you will get whole families mm-hmm. who are who are bitten or who you know fall ill and just don't perish Uh, which then was awful because of course they're contained in their houses for whatever set period some people as long as a month essentially <clears throat> and so how do you survive because other people that you may not have had any neighbors they may all have died or gone away so how do you eat drink because you're not you've probably got not got pumped water it's uh, all very difficult the human stories that we don't own because i always own everyone else's stories <laughs> um, the human stories we don't own from those years must be unthinkable I'm Natalie Haynes. You're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture and then following rapidly
1: on the tale of the plague is the is the great fire of london again something that um most people are obviously familiar with but let's sort of let's talk about it briefly in terms of how that's going to set the scene for the sort of regeneration of london but one of the interesting things i think a fact that like people will know is that not that many people died in the fire but you talk about in the book how that might not actually be the case
2: no i think that the figures are Really played down because we don't have any prison figures, and Mm -hmm. I think there would have been a lot of prisoners just abandoned. And we don't have any figures for the elderly and infirm, or people living alone, or the disabled. Mm -hmm. It all just seems too good to be true. People talk about, oh, wasn't it remarkable that no one died? Well, yes, it was, and we did see it coming in lots of ways. You could see it progressing through the city. Mm -hmm. And if your elderly mother was upstairs, of course, you would have got her out if you could. We're talking about Tudor buildings that had been subdivided, 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 subdivided and tenements and, and into tiny bed almost. And there would have been lots of people living in really difficult circumstances. And also many more people suffered physical disability than we have now.
1: And so before we talk about the rebuilding, the one of the of the of the four items that you talk about as sort of laying the groundwork for Georgian London is is the revolution of sixteen eighty eight. So this is probably Boy, the one that most finished. people will be less familiar with. So give us a recap of what this is, and why it's significant.
2: So Charles II was a Protestant, but we're not really sure whether he was. We're not really sure about Charles's religious motivation. Personally, I think that his religious motivation was, was in the wind. But he did have a Catholic brother, James, who was waiting to come to the throne because, of course, Charles didn't have any children, as was the way of many 17th century kings and queens because of interbreeding and sexual diseases and all that kind of thing. And James came to the throne, and he had two daughters, Anne and Mary. And he was a Catholic, and James was instrumental at the end of Charles's life in Charles's deathbed confession and his conversion, deathbed conversion. But there's nothing to say, in fact, that Charles's confession wasn't real. However, the city of London does not like a Catholic king, and this is to do with mainly Mary, Queen of Tudor. And the fact that she burned Protestants in the public areas of London in Smithfield, which is an area that the City of London felt it had ownership over, the young people felt that that was a safe place for them to go. And, and when she burned Protestants there, many London's Protestants were main, uh, London's merchants were mainly Protestants, so or dissenters in. inverted commas, Um, which meant they probably weren't that bothered either way. Very pragmatic people, lots of them dealing with the Netherlands the entire time. So quite sort of a low church people. And they weren't interested in a Catholic monarch. Mm -hmm. So James comes to the throne and he's a supremely ineffectual king. In lots of ways, he was the hero of the Great Fire of London. He's not a bad man. He just gets it wrong, 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 wrong. And also then he starts to, he tries, so his daughter's husband william of orange is over in the netherlands and sees his opportunity and james can't do anything about it when he tries to lead soldiers he suffers from terrible headaches and nosebleeds and things, which is obviously just terror and in loads of ways i feel really sorry for him but he wasn't a good king so let's move on and his daughters plot against him Anne flees in the night and it's all very very sad for james and he absconds and he throws the great seal of government into the Thames as a, as a way of washing his hands. And William is already on his way over to Torbay, and we're having this huge grand invasion, <laughs> which never happens, of course. And in theory, it was this military invasion, but it wasn't really, it had already been planned. And the city sends out a vance party from the Guildhall that actually meet William. He was supposed to be going up to Oxford for some sort of military summit, and the Guildhall send out a party to Henley, and they meet with him. I think it was Christmas Eve. Meet with William and say, "Okay, well, the city will let you sit in Westminster and let you and your wife take the throne. You know, foreign king, fine. But you have to rule according to these rules that we're going to lay down, and let us do as we like, basically." And William said, "Yeah, fine, no problem." <laughs> uh, it's called the Guildhall delegation, and. That's why it was a glorious revolution. That's why there was no blood, because it was all to do with money and Mm -hmm. allowing... And then all he wanted to do was go to war on the continent. So we formed the Bank of England in order to give him the money. To do it the same members of the same delegation
1: we'll come back to the the formula of the bank of england and various money topics when we get on to yes. the uh, talking about the rebuilding of the city but just before we before we get there so those four historical events that you've talked about as i said you, you sort of talk about them as being significant not just to london but sort of specifically to the identity of Britain, london and and, 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 the, and the identity and so. of, of, of of georgia and of you know of georgia yeah. london so why so what's the what do you think the significance of those things together is to the city that it becomes
2: oh well I think across the world you still have this enormous divide of the peasant class and the aristocracy and we're moving towards the middle class and the bourgeois very rapidly and those four events bring the middle classes to the forefront of London in 25 years. People stop being interested in the monarchy because it can change tomorrow. They know that they might die tomorrow. plague could come again. You could lose X, Y, Z members of your family. You could lose your property. And hence you have to insure everything. Insurance becomes a... Which is great for a historian because everything's documented and you get these amazing insights on insurance policies into households. And then government, you know, government will either flex or move itself in order to remain in power with uh, William and Mary. And so... London's just stopped trusting everything and it's it's the completely the forerunner as well of the American the American idea <laughs> uh, which we we're, we're seeing right now I think. We've lost that completely in this country. We've been so used to stability even through these two catastrophic 20th century wars. We've been so used to governments guiding us through that now we hold our governments in contempt. Now, that's not to say that our government doesn't need contempt right now but in america which is still living in many ways in the revolutionary mindset your average white american living in a an ordinary american state let's just say not a liberal state so not west or east they truly believe that if you look away from your government for a second from the situation around you your health the government the world itself it will all fall down or they'll crush you They're out to get you. Hence, we now, in Britain, really don't understand that American mindset. But that was our mindset. And that was the late 17th century mindset and the early 18th century mindset, which created... And that's why America keeps on pile-driving forwards as much as the rest of the world doesn't like it. And nobody liked us in the late 17th century, early 18th century. But that's how they think. And they've inherited that from us, and they're such a young nation. And we were so young and so... of promise (laughs) but it's very similar and if you want a comparison to look across to I would say that's probably still quite a good one
1: this is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Lucy Ingalls, and we're talking about her book, George in London, Into the Streets. And Lucy, we're going to talk about the rebuilding of the city of London, and then we'll move on to look at some other... In the book, you go through various geographical areas of London, talk about their life on the streets, but also about notable people, notable innovations and things. And we'll do, we'll do a similar thing, but the obvious best place to start is with the city, which is being rebuilt so I want to talk about the rebuilding of St Paul's I guess first of all so let's do that tell us about the rebuilding of St Paul's and the the city around it
2: I think that what we have to bear in mind if you've ever been to Norwich or to York to the Shambles that the city of London was very much like that except to the power of whatever you had little houses that had been built on galleried Tudor houses and medieval houses that had been built on until their gables met over the streets, things like that so it was no wonder that they burned in the city of London because the fire went across roof lines so we knew that we couldn't rebuild in the same way and St. Paul's had been this unbelievably massive sprawling edifice that had all sorts of outbuildings and a charnel house and a and a charter house and and various different work offices and it almost went down to the river and it wasn't nearly as steep as it is now, so an enormous compound a religious compound and when it burned, it was just... I can't imagine what it must have been like for people to watch it, with the lead from the roof running through the streets. So your horse couldn't walk through the streets because, for days because the lead was too hot underfoot and it was mm-hmm. running and it, it had like lava and then solidified in rivulets, but that stayed boiling. And the heat was coming up from the earth. It, it was biblical. Four-fifths of the city burned, mm-hmm. which was an incredible number. And we lost almost I think all of the public buildings but St Paul's was an astonishing one it did make the career of Christopher Wren though who had just been to tell the to tell the uh, church elders that it couldn't be uh, repaired because it was in such a state (laughs) and then it burns down So, of course, this is his huge career break. Mm -hmm. At the same time, everything is so old that the fire tempered it into a hardness, like the Great Wall of China, almost, with the the rice mortar. that You couldn't break down. Mm -hmm. So it took as long, almost, to clear the debris as it did to rebuild the cathedral. And he made this astonishing. His vision was... I'm always... I get very annoyed when people say, oh, they didn't have electricity, as if people were simple. But you have people like wren and newton and hook all working at the same time whose brains outstrip all but the finest finest brains to date who are equipped with the world's knowledge at their fingertips these are people who are working uh, trying to work out how the eyeball actually focuses or how we perceive light and they do it with no tools whatsoever apart from their own a mind stick in a-
1: Bodkin into
2: it. Sticking a bodkin into his eye, wasn't that to alter his uh, the sphere of his eyeball to see whether that changed his focus. Oh, that makes me feel so yeah, ill. Stick <laughs> I know. I'm not very good with eyes. Um yeah. Just amazing. And Wren had so many plans for St. Paul's that we still aren't quite sure about, which are all sort of lost in the mists of time. And I think I'm going to just it's going to be a slightly vague i think the first service was planned for easter sunday 1690 Two. and there was a service then but it wasn't the opening service and we've just there's a man who has written a, a brilliant book called The Building of St Paul's I think it was just written a couple of years ago and he has done astonishing work and no one could understand why St Paul's was oriented differently mm-hmm. to the original St Paul's because it's not quite on the traditional Christian axis yeah. and it was because the sun would rise in line with the east door for Easter Sunday, sixteen ninety two, which was the first service, and yeah, so isn't that amazing? And Renard worked it out, so he he was planning. He he thought that it would be finished, <clears> and because it wasn't truly finished, but it, I think it was ninety two. I hope it was ninety two. Anyway, um, but anyway, do look at this book, The Building of St Paul's, it's very good. And we're finding out all these things, all these hundreds of years later. And he he truly anyway, St Paul's became a focus for. The regeneration of the city. Hence, on the south door, you have the phoenix, which symbolises Charles II returning to the throne, resurgum. Christopher Wren's son, also Christopher, wrote a biography of his father. And apparently, when Christopher Wren was walking around and he was trying to find a stone to mark where he was going to start building, the centre of the new cathedral, and he had pasted it out. I don't know whether he paced it out, I would imagine he measured it very carefully and had people measure it for him. But he looked for a stone and he pointed to a tombstone which had fallen over from the old fire. And his foreman... An incidentally the foreman of the job on st paul's and the main building family and all of the building families were five sets of london city builders from the medieval period who had generations and generations Mm -hmm. of builders so the skill there must have been tremendous and picked up this stone this tombstone and the only word it had on it was resurgum resurrection obviously And so Christopher went to bring it over and they put it there on the centre of the new cathedral. And apparently that was what it was all built upon. And on the south door now, there is a phoenix, which represents the rebirth of the city. (laughs) It represents the return of Charles II. And it says beneath it, re And you can still see it today.
1: I want to talk about how the city that we (coughs) know today, the financial centre, well, not came to be, but just talk about, we'll talk about money and various different, Ways around money, and there's this thing called recoinage, yeah. but also the surprisingly late the first banknotes or the f- yes. you know the first denominational banknotes at yeah. this time as well. 1720s.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: so, well, the recoinage thing first of all, and this sort of comes about for various reasons, but one of the ones I'd like to talk about is the clipping of the coins, yeah. which is an interesting practice.
2: So, very, very briefly, the Bank of England in the late 17th century, London merchants were running being really successful globally and earning loads of money for various different reasons but mainly global trade also trade with europe and things were becoming really important to them such as bullion credit because we were trading increasingly overseas and if you trade overseas you need credit and then we had a king who a new king who needed goodwill but he also needed money to fight wars abroad which the merchants were it works two ways it might work against you but it also might work massively for you so we'll see how that goes so the merchants worked out that they could control Westminster by giving them the national debt (laughs) essentially which was giving Westminster all of this money in exchange for payments in perpetuity so giving them a big loan which always makes me laugh when people talk about the national debt and they say, oh, it's not, you know, balancing the books. Well, we haven't balanced them since the 1680s. We're not going to start now. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, so anyway, we start the Bank of England and we have a set of merchants involved sitting on the board. And we have a Jewish family firm running the bullion side of things. And incidentally, we give them all our bullion and we have no idea where it's stored. It's in a secret place called The Warehouse, which is just referred to as The Warehouse.
1: Well, also, let's just talk about the the status of Jews in London at that time, because they're technically illegal.
2: Technically illegal, yet everyone accepts the fact that they're here. And uh, living in very high status circumstances, lots of um, Sephardic jewish merchants here and they just pretend to be spanish spanish catholics which is is a bit like it's, it's, it's awful it's i can't make it even a comparison it it's sort of being the worst thing you could imagine and then say oh well i'm the other worst thing you could imagine no, yet legal so they often said that they were spanish catholics but mainly just allowed to get on and oh, hugely powerful poor Jewish people didn't have a great time here because they couldn't officially own land <laughs> and things like that, but again all was worked around as it is in so many different places and particularly you have to admire Jewish fortitude through the years in the sense of the way that they did it has obviously been the way they've had to do it for <laughs> so long that in London they just perpetuated that, but again moving in really high status circumstances and I think it was in seventeen oh two that william knighted uh, one of his jewish backers so they don't legally exist yet we have them <laughs> we're giving them knighthoods which is just a, a way of dealing with things isn't it i'm charlotte higgins and you're listening to little atoms a radio show about ideas and culture
1: so um let's talk about the coin clipping
2: yes coin clipping well it, in so in the 1680s and 90s you're, Early nineties, you had loads of coins that have been in circulation since the Elizabethan time. But because there's not really any, there is credit, but there's not really any official credit, and certainly no such thing as a credit card or even a banknote. If you pass over a coin for bread, for a service, for anything, and the person takes it, it's legal tender. So in theory, it works fine as long as the person at the other end takes the coin and everything stays in circulation. But we've realised that it actually couldn't work like that. And because of the Bank of England becoming now an official entity, it was becoming increasingly untenable that people were press, passing off brass coins and, and coin clipping. So what happens is you had a coin that was minted and I don't know if any of you have been to Bath or York. So you can put your penny in and it, into a machine at the museums and it smashes it into an old penny or a Roman coin or whatever. And they have very thin edges. So, in theory, you can just shave a tiny bit off with a pair of steel scissors the tiniest bit, and then sand it down, and then one will notice the difference. and if you do it enough times with enough coinage, you end up with enough metal to build new coins to make new coins. And what they did was build very soft punches that only last probably punch 40 or 50 new coins with them. They cost you nothing, and then you have 40 or 50 new coins, but they're fake. But they go back into the system, and no one looks or thinks, and that's that.
1: And what happened? What would happen to you if you did this, if you were caught doing this? Oh, we talk about oh that. if you're a
2: man, and you'd been caught properly doing it, they'd execute you. And if you're a woman, you're supposed to be burned. And they didn't burn very many women. I think it was two over the course of the entire time, who were proper offenders. <laughs> <laughs> i not... So. I'm not <laughs> it's, it's pretty harsh, but... They were, I think that they they had probably other crimes under their belt as well. But, yeah, it was a really serious thing. But, again, it's, it's a bit... Uh, we were really big in the 18th century on and late 17th on execution for everything, but there weren't actually that many executions.
1: <laughs> and the banknotes thing, there was sort of like paper, like you would almost like write a cheque, like, yeah. like an amount, you would write a note, like a promissory note type thing rather yes. than... And so this is the time when we decided to actually introduce money of like set denominations in terms of notes.
2: Absolutely. Well, what they used to have was, because there were no banks apart from personal banks, which we still have kind of in coots and whores and childs, so you trusted the man that you went to bank with. He was usually a gold or silversmith because he would have bullion resources Mm -hmm. that people knew he had loads of cash behind him. And you would say to him, I need a note that means I am worth this much, or my representative is worth this much. It's like a postal lauder for £180 let's say. So you would go and buy a house in Essex or an estate for £180 and you would give the person the note and they would present it on your behalf and then of course a little series of messenger boys would come back and say so-and-so has presented the note and we need this much money and the money would be taken out to or the person would come to London and collect it and it would be deposited with someone else and go into a bullion store. But we were increasingly realising this was not massively convenient. So the Bank of England goes about trying to produce these notes that can't be forged and that are for set denominations. They're not set at the beginning, they're still I give you X, Y, Z or please present whatever. And then by the 1720s they become set amounts. But they're so successful, of course, everyone loves them. That the fakers are onto them immediately mm. and trying to trying to fake them. Yeah.
1: There's an interesting fact that the people that made the paper Portals, the those... portals
2: of Beer Mill, Hampshire. It's very secret. Yeah, yeah. They still make them now. But apparently now with these brand new plastic banknotes, they're not gonna make them anymore. Which I think is really that is quite sad. sad. I think it's really because they're so secret that we really know barely anything about them. Which quite rightly in a way. And uh, they obviously made the first ones with watermarks, watermarking was the real thing. And then after, and now you can put banknotes through the washing machine and they've in, done all that, you know, putting strips in them and everything. So, yeah, they're all quite impressive.
1: One other thing before we leave the city. The Tower of London had a menagerie for it years did. and years, which eventually became the, the, you know, the start of London Zoo. But let's talk about what, what that would have been like. What would it have been like to go and visit the Tower in those
2: days to see the animals? Oh, stinky, I'd imagine. But I think it would have been... The animals were kept... Ooh, it's really difficult because animal welfare... I mean, I still I, I still really struggle with the ideas of idea of zoos now. Yet... Have seen menageries where animals are kept in situations where they wouldn't survive outside. So it's all—it's very difficult call to make. But I think that the Tower of London did their best in terms of what they knew at the time about animal welfare. And there are not many—I was going to say few—but I want to be as honest as I can. There aren't many stories about animal well there are no stories about animal cruelty as such only them trying to actually do their best and you get the real sense that the elephant keepers loved the elephants and the, the people who looked after the zebra loved the zebra and they were moving them around all the time I think things like big cats and so on would have suffered because you can't let them out whereas things like elephants and zebra, there was no health and safety so they just let them go out. So as much as they could have had any kind of unenclosed life they had it. Also way back in the 13th century we had a polar bear that used to be on the Thames foreshore and it had a dedicated keeper who used to wander around with him letting him do exactly what he wanted all day every day. So as much as it's an an awful sense of captivity, it's not necessarily cruel but going to see it must have been amazing. I would, I would love to have been... I went to India this year and I was prepared for all sorts of different things because everyone had told me what to expect from India. But I have to say, walking through Udaipur on a crowded evening and there just being an elephant that was walking by itself with a painted face going to drink from a well. And I realised that its keeper was not very far away and was watching. But it was completely autonomous in that sense. And that was insane. I was standing in the middle of a street and there were cows everywhere and there was an elephant there. And I think that that would have been... That's a comparable experience to how you would have felt going to the Tower of London Menagerie and seeing all these different animals. And they also, there were old animals. I mean, Samuel Pepys talks about old Crowley the lion who was losing his teeth and it was a bit sad. And that is sad, but we were being given these animals from left, right and centre. So you would have been seeing proper lionesses you know cheetahs in their prime and things which is sad but and also we're living in a time of seeing things like sea sponges so someone your boyfriend may have might have given you a sea sponge for your face and that would have been such an exotic gift (laughs) and now these things to us are so commonplace or all these different things turtle shells would have been beautiful you know we might you might have seen a tortoise maybe someone might have brought a tortoise from their foreign travels but a turtle shell and incredible commodities reflected in the living animals that are then in the menagerie that you could visit
0: selling a little or a lot
1: This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Lucy Ingalls, and we're talking about her book *George in London: Into the Streets*. And Lucy, we've been talking in the maid about the city, bankers, people building St Paul's. I want to get more onto the um, down, literally into the streets now, and talk about another side of, of life in London. And first of all, let's begin in the area that was then known as Moorfields, which I mean, I guess the name lives on in like Moorfields Eye Hospital and stuff. But we're t- really talking about where the bar Barbican is and yeah. where Moorgate is, Moorgate Station, Finsbury Square, and that sort of area. Yeah. And actually, first of all, let's talk about Grub Street, which was around there as well, because that's very relevant to, to what we do and what we're doing now. Grub Street being, you know, a name from the from the annals of journalism, and it's a place that doesn't exist anymore. So, whereabouts was that?
2: Yeah, Grub Street ran. If you know where the Barbican is now, the, the Barbican's amazing because go in and you get really lost, and it feels a bit strange, and lots of water. Everywhere and water features. And I used to be quite alienated by the barbecue, but what's amazing is that the builders have recreated the feeling the original feeling of Moorfields in that sense of anonymity and alienation and water everywhere <laughs> because it's a mo- it was a boggy moor you had lots of places you had to have planks to walk across bits and pieces of it and there was on the western side of it there was a street that ran all the way up for a long long way and it was called Grub Street and it was where loads of the seditious literature and the pornography was printed and that's why it's called Grub Street because if you had something bad to print you would go down to grub street and get a typesetter a talented young typesetter who'd been to grammar school and got his latin and greek and all of his you know relevant education but probably lived on the the edges of life and uh, he would set it up for you and print it and you would have 100 copies to distribute in the streets by that, the end of that day. So that's what Grub Street was about and that's why people still talk about it now because it, it moved from being a real thing to a symbolic thing.
1: And that sort of was, I guess, ran up the side of what we described as Moorfields in those days. And there was like you had like a sort of lower and upper Moorfields and yeah. this dividing line between lower, lower and upper Moorfields, which is now roughly one side of, of Finsbury so Square, square off, yeah. of, off of Moorgate, was
2: um... almost that centre, the centre line through... For... Finsbury Square, mm-hmm. that you can walk across the square itself. It's not yeah. a park, but it was is, in those it, days that's the line that, that was the line that was
1: um, yeah. colloquially known as um, Sodomites Walk. It
2: was Sodomites so perhaps we walk. should
1: talk about why? <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, Moorfields was so you have Smithfield, Moorfields. These are all, um, Chelsea as well to an extent at that time, are areas that the public feel that they own, citizens feel that they own. They're not owned really by anyone as such but they're very much public spaces and Moorfields was absolutely dominated at night and often during the day during the day because it was if you're an apprentice and you were going to take your girlfriend out you would have taken her to Smithfields if you're an apprentice you're going to hang out with boys you probably would have gone to Moorfields hence the Men who were interested in that would gravitate towards that, hence it's a you know it's a positive feedback loop <laughs> so it became quite uh, an edgy place anyway but it was it was quite violent because you would have people fighting dogs there and you had have vernacle fights so it was quite a male violent environment and because so many people were living. Now, I I mean, even in the closet is a hackneyed term, isn't it? But so many people were living closeted lives. Moorfields was a place where you could go and kind of get a few innocent kicks if you wanted to do. But equally, the opportunity for engagement was there if you wanted it. And definitely north of the wall, (laughs) you could get up to pretty much anything you wanted to.
1: But it seems like... Actually, despite you know describing it as as people being in the closet, and obviously they were going to these sort of illicit places, but homosexuality seems to be more open at that point yeah, than it became. Definitely. Certainly, like a hundred you know Victorian oh, times completely. or something. completely.
2: People are really open minded, and you have there's a really famous case of Princess Seraphina, who's a cross dressing male nurse who dresses up as a woman in his outside of his work, which is as a private nurse, and he gets robbed and he goes to court as a man, as a male homosexual, and takes his... Well, he prosecutes the case, which is, at the time, you'd think, well, this is insane because actually he could be mm-hmm. killed for this. He was engaging in you know sexual congress with a man and robbed. And, of course, the, the guy who robbed him used that as the defence, thinking he's never going to do it. He took it to court and... What's really interesting, that's one interesting aspect, because you could think, well, okay, he's a death wish, or he doesn't care, he's beyond caring, whatever. But in court, you have witnesses who refer to him as she, and it goes on and on, and then people keep saying, oh, well, is is he, he or she, or is it... And then the judge says, look, just how shall we refer to him, he or she? And he is then referred to as She. And I think that we've now, you know, that's insane to think of that. If you'd told someone in the 1950s, if you'd been able to say to people in the 50s, you know what, this was a much more liberal society not that long ago. I think people would have thought that was crazy.
1: There was starting to be a beginning of a, of a crackdown. You talk about a yeah. thing called the Society so, for the Reformation of Manners, Manners yeah. which were basically like a, almost like a fugitive police force that were going out and
2: patrolling. Yeah. Um, they're like a really busy neighbourhood watch, but also entrapment as well. Mm-hmm. Really naughty. The Reformation of Manners was sort of a leftover... There were second-generation Puritans in a lot of ways that had been kind of cheated out of their heritage, or third-generation maybe, who were desperate to get back. To this idea of outraged of Tunbridge Wells, sort of thing, but took it to extremes. And also, I think there probably were quite a few people who belonged to it who were probably homosexual themselves and not in a happy place mm-hmm. and we're taking it to the extreme in order to say, oh, this man, you know, he, he put his penis in my hand and how terrible was that? <laughs> and I'm so outraged, whereas the majority of society was like, yeah, OK, just everyone get along.
1: <laughs> I want to talk about the White Swan Affair, which is um, a famous case as well and you sort of go into detail about it in the book and there's there were these, you know, the sort of Mother Claps Molly House and stuff which people yeah. might have heard of, which were these sort of like, they weren't strictly brothels but like just established Establishments that men could go to, and you know, there'd, there'd be beds in rooms and things. And one of these places, well a, a pub, the White Swan affair. So let's talk about that.
2: Yeah, well, that was much later, though. Mm. That's kind of a hundred yeah. years later. When you do definitely have, you have in the early 18th century, people tended to be quite. You would often get married men with quite a few children who, if they were walking around now or you met them now, they would self-identify as gay but they wanted to play their part in society so they'd get married and they have that and they, they're kind of doing both things at once whereas towards the end of the 18th century you would certainly get both in literature art culture society thinking you get divide so you get the men who are want to self identify as gay men and they want to pursue a scene lifestyle in the way that we would imagine it now so if you imagine the gay clubs and things like that that's what they wanted rather than actually fancy men but remaining quite straight in lots of senses (laughs) and the white swan represents that it's a it's a scene lifestyle it is it's going to a club and having sex with a lot of different men whereas mother claps molly house is about dressing up as a woman and pretending to get married to a man (laughs) to a big strapping coal heaver or something like that so it's very different and yeah the white swan affair is it's really sad that thomas the drummer the 16 year old drummer was the guy who took the fall for for all of it <clears throat> when in reality thomas i think he was probably a sly little rat in lots of ways but really was innocent of everything. And I think it was an aristocratic uh, decision to let him go. I think that the White Swan had become a place where lots of rich and influential men went, and let's not draw any parallels to the modern day, but let's. And apparently they were all in the yard to watch him die, um, which I think is really pretty grim. And he was the one, Thomas was the one who was absolutely putting himself out there for engagement with older men, risque behaviour, everything else. The acts that he was executed for were absolutely not representative of what he was guilty of. It was just insane, and I think that's really sad. And, And everyone that was, in theory, guilty by written law, they got away with it, and that was rubbish.
1: We've we'll been talking about obviously male homosexuality so far, but what I mean, yeah. how was it for women?
2: Well, I think it was a lot easier for women. Women were naturally forced together by domesticity and left alone, and not bothering the men, so they had lots of time to get on with whatever they wanted to get on with. And also, women being together and being a strong, united force throughout the household. So the head of the the female head of the household, and then domestic servants. It was all promoted being together, and all that. And the tea party only promoted that as well. And it wasn't illegal because people couldn't possibly imagine that women would be lesbians exclusively Um, I don't think it was necessarily understanding that women wouldn't sleep with other women Mm -hmm. I think it was the idea that women would go away from the family and the home and you know having a man and and children which we still we're seeing now you know you go into an age of austerity and all the talk is about hard-working families everything else supporting the family and of course society allegedly doesn't function unless you have this nuclear family however for women it was much easier and I think there are loads of stories about different women who, well, there are lots of stories about particularly seafaring women who join the navy or cross dress in order to go onto a merchant ship. So, Wapping and the east of London is a centre for it, but Spitalfields and Shoreditch in particular were definitely friendly to, so you had female establishments where gay women were welcomed, and so you could go in. So, a, usually a tavern or an, a pub. Even now, I think, it can be quite daunting as a woman to go into a busy pub full of <clears throat> men, in particular, and then it wouldn't really have been the done thing. You know, even 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been the done thing. And it wasn't then, but there were certainly places in the east of, end of London where single women could go into kind of a drinking, socialising environment and meet other women. And also, I think there were very... Uh, far more domestic situations because you had lots more domestic servitude where you would get two girls women who worked together lived together for a long time as domestic servants and would share a room and the people who employed them would completely ignore any aspect of it because they just that's what that is and we're very happy with the situation you get it as well with single mothers Mm -hmm. you you know serving girls who conceive children and their employers are more than happy with them in general and they've been with them maybe seven years or six years or two years or whatever but they like them and their husband's got alzheimer's so they look after him or whatever and they just say okay that's get on (laughs) i'm rachel cook You're listening to Resonance FM and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Oh,
1: let's go back to London nightlife. And imagine ourselves, um, well, actually, not ourselves. Let's talk about the memoirs of a guy you, uh, you mention, uh, Johann Wilhelm von Arkenholz, who's yeah. a guy that comes to London, and takes a stroll along the Strand one evening. <laughs> um, what are his impressions?
2: That it's absolutely rammed with prostitutes. <laughs> For want of be a better phrase. <laughs> Um, Of course, because I first came to London in the mid-90s and I was really shocked by all the calling cards in the the phone boxes (laughs) back in the day. (laughs) And of course we don't have that now because the internet is there and... You can you know look at what you're getting before you buy allegedly, and all of that kind of thing, but of course there was not there weren't even calling cards in in the eighteenth century, so women had to go out and be on the streets the street until they got a reputation and a few reliable gentleman callers. they had to be on the streets literally, which I think must have been tremendously frightening in many ways, but I also think kinder times in lots of ways as well, and I think that men were not all men obviously and men vary but people looking for sex were men looking for sex workers were understood the rules of engagement that there seems to have been an etiquette to it and a human reality to it that is is much more about barter and engagement than you would than a horribly unsympathetic coupling. I'm sure there was lots of that as well. But when you read it, the people who write about it, the terms in which it's described can often be very touching, um, even if they're horribly seedy at the same time, which I think is a, a reflection of the human experience in general. So.
1: Well, you mentioned there was, um, you know, there was no cards in phone boxes, but there is a thing, Harris's List. Oh, yeah,
2: Harris's which List. Which is what? Which is a catalogue or a guide and almost an A to Z of known prostitutes in London who offer various different services. So it has a um, a large-breasted category, and it has a category for redheads and particularly disgusting young ladies. And there's one I can't remember her name, but she's as I think she's even called Lucy actually, <laughs> and she's as lewd as goats and monkeys, and she will do anything. <laughs> And there's, uh, there are nice, very pleasantly presented old ladies as well, let me just say, at, you know, almost 40 years old. <laughs> so yeah and harris's list was it was originally written by an actor out of work actor who had too much time in his hands and drank too much but had a, a beautiful turn of phrase and a very kind heart i think ultimately and when he died it was taken over by a business so to speak and it was not nearly as fun when it was taken over it was much more commercial and the girls are described in far less ravishing terms let's put it that way
1: we're nearly at the end, so let's finish off talking about booze. And this is the time of you know, Hogarth and Gin Lane and stuff, and people yeah. starting to be, you know, drink becoming a societal problem. Yeah. But actually, first of all, before we perhaps touch on gin, there's this amazing incident where there's a beer flood.
2: Yeah, basically it's in 14. 14. <laughs> St Giles and the Fields was a Tudor open space with some nice mansions. So by the time of the Great Fire, it had fallen into all being subdivided into tenements and grisly. And also it was adjacent to open land. So when the Irish hay harvesters came to London, what they did was plant their potato crop, came to London, worked for the hay harvest... And then they could go home. But because of the levels of construction and because we needed outside labour and your average Cockney at the time was small and thin. So probably I'm five foot four ish. They would have been about five foot four, but very whippy. And big Irish lads were what you needed for construction. Mm. So we were bringing in a lot of them and also Dutch, Dutch boys to work so what they were doing was planting the potato crop and then not going home. And so their wives came over, so they needed places to live. St Giles and the Fields was where they lived predominantly because of the open space and the Tudor organisation of these backyards they could keep a pig. So St Giles becomes a slum because they're always about to go home. It's, they're living many through a yeah. room and it's this sense of constant cycling and renewal. But nothing's getting renewed, sadly. So St. Giles takes a massive dive. It becomes a hovel of prostitution, drink. They call it the Irish vegetation, which is an awful way of referring to it in the 18th century during the gin craze. And it only continues towards the end of the 18th century and there was a poor boy called James Dawson Byrne who came to St Giles with his stepfather his drunken stepfather from Scotland who tried to stab him in his sleep and strangle him up by the side of the road on the way when he was just a child and he remembers St Giles being a place of savage crimes Mm -hmm. I mean and to say that when your own stepfather has tried to do that to you it was terrible but it still had access to really good cheap water and space so the breweries were making there in the early 19th century and the labour was cheap and local and everything else and there was a terrible the Muir brewery in 1814 they had five enormous vast barrels of beer on stilts and the first one split and went and it was a domino effect and really even more tragically the only people that the beer flood killed which was I can't remember how many gallons it was. It was, mi- I think, it was a million gallons or something. It swept through a terrace of houses, and it only killed women and children, which I think is just horrible because all the men were out of work, labouring, and dismal.
1: Drowning in beer, though. Um, you have got to go.
2: <laughs> also, the, what really annoys me is that I think only women and children died, and the only child, the only male child, is the only child we know the name of, mm. and he was called Thomas. So even then, the emphasis was on remembering the one boy. <laughs>
1: One more question then. And as I said at the very beginning, I want to talk very briefly about your next book, which is going to be about opium. And I mean, it, it is briefly mentioned in here, Thomas De Quincey makes an appearance in this book. But finish off by telling us what the next book is going to be about and I guess when we can expect to see it.
2: Yeah, well, it's going to be out January 2017, which I know seems like a long time, but it's really not. <laughs> it's about the history of opium and what it means to us as people, as a human race it's there is people might be surprised to hear there's no such thing as a wild opium poppy there's also no it's, they're all domesticated uh, variants, and there's also no such thing as a wild coca plant or a tobacco plant. So all of our narcotic plants have been cultivated alongside our cultivated wheat and barley mm-hmm. and oats because we're so dependent upon them, and most of us hopefully please God, unless we die on our beds we'll die reliant upon morphine as a painkiller and yet we deny it constantly and there's a reason we're fighting in Helmand province over a prehistoric dust bowl and yet no one talks about it, everyone talks about targeting the oil and and all of these sources of income no one wants to talk about the heroin refineries sitting on the borders with Russia in, and Tajikistan and no one wants to talk about it with regards to Iran and so it's quite a political book but it does, it does feature a lot it, there's only a small amount that was what fascinated me about it and then I became involved in uh, the, the larger history of it and how we, we've never been without it in many ways and where does it come from and the idea is that originally someone got a buzz from eating a poppy head probably somewhere in the black sea and we've cultivated it since then and it's just spread but it's grown with us as people and it will continue to be one of the driving economic forces in the world for our children and our children's children and i think that to tell the story of it to tell the story of how people need to escape themselves as well as pain difficulty and 25 percent and there was report to congress in 1969 had 25 percent of all serving american soldiers in vietnam were recreational heroin users at least once a week because they're so frightened they're just Mm -hmm. kids and that is the drug that is there and so they take it and it's heroin and we demobbed lower estimate is a hundred thousand american civil war soldiers that these kids are under 25, probably missing a limb after the American Civil War. And they go out and they build America. They go out to the reaches of bloody Kansas and Iowa and these places and they get themselves together and they build a nation. And I think that these are stories that need to be told and that's what I'm telling at the moment.
1: Well, we'll talk about that more in more detail in, in January 2017. Then. Oh, wow. Meanwhile, we've been talking about George in London, Into the Streets, which is by Lucy Ingalls, and it's been out for a while in paperback from Penguin. So, Lucy, thank you very much for coming in to tell me about oh, it. Oh, Neil, thank you very
2: much for having me. I've enjoyed it so much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance Four Point Four FM.
0: The show is supported by 89UP and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at LittleAtoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism, and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com.
2: Thanks for listening.
0: Hold up.